and prophets coming through, some from Paul's camp, some from uh, James and Peter's camp, and the two of them are not saying the same thing. As a matter of fact, they actually have wars with one another during this 40-year period that we're going to be talking about. So try to picture yourself as, as one of these individuals. Then also try to find yourself in Israel itself, the headquarters, the center of, of the, uh, the only God, the God of, of all, the, the single God. His name was Yahweh, and they couldn't uh, pronounce that name. They had superstitious, uh, all kind of superstition around the, the name of the God of the Old Testament. And so they, uh, they, uh, they would not uh, pronounce the name, but, but we believe most of uh, the scholars who have taken a look at the, uh, the tetragram and how it is pronounced, they probably would say that Yahweh is, is as close as any in terms of pronouncing it. And let's say you're a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, like Paul, living in Jerusalem. You go to synagogue and you keep the law. And you've gotten caught up in not only keeping, uh, you know, Moses' law, but doing all kind of other uh, things that, that weren't in the Mosaic law. You, uh, at that time, you were uh, generally uh, caught in some kind of a seminary of some sort, a school. You were either under Shammai or Gamaliel or Hillel. Uh, Paul, the apostle, for example, I believe studied under uh, Gamaliel. And, and they had all kind of interpretations of interpretations of interpretations of the Mosaic Law. And, uh, and they spent hours and hours debating whether uh, uh, you could, uh, if you uh, sewed a stitch in, in a piece of cloth, whether that was considered work or not, you know, whether you could do that on the Sabbath or not. I mean, there were tremendous, tremendous amount of laws that were added in addition to the Mosaic Law. And you were a chief Pharisee. I mean, you were a zealot of zealots, and you were diligent to make sure that you tithed your mint and your cumin, and you were in living in the, in the headquarters of, of uh, the kingdom of God, where everything in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, the kingdom to come, everything was going to come forth from Jerusalem. And you wouldn't leave this city for anything in the world. This was God's holy city, and you were a citizen of it, and you were proud as a peacock of living in this beautiful, wonderful city. The city was, a, at that time, a beautiful city. Herod the Great spent uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars really making this a first-class uh, act. In, in the whole Roman world. Because of his great tax breaks that he got from Rome, the, uh, the Roman emperor was the one who put him into office, and they had, uh, they had a pretty good deal going there. And Herod the Great, a, uh, an Idumean, a, a, uh, a descendant of Esau, who became the, the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, he built incredible works throughout not only Israel, but he sent money and funds to uh, the, the Gentile cities to, uh, to help them out as well. So picture yourself being a citizen of the, uh, the capital of God's kingdom in the world. And Herod the Great just uh, spent millions and millions of dollars making it one of the most beautiful glamorous cities in the world. The temple was beyond a shadow of a doubt, one of the most incredible buildings that uh, existed in the entire world. And you got to come to the temple anytime you wanted to and stand at the, uh, the, the steps there 
and listen to the great teachers of the world. And maybe, just maybe, one day you happen to be uh, had a little extra time in the afternoon and you wanted to go down and hear what the latest thing was, go- who, 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 who was speaking, and lo and behold, here was Peter, the apostle, and he was declaring the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he declared, you know, uh, um, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Lord and Savior and the, uh, the, the, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And something happened in your heart that only the Holy Spirit can do. And all of a sudden you found that Jesus Christ, the one whom Jerusalem crucified, was in fact your personal Messiah, your personal Savior. And so now you find yourself in the Jerusalem church and very quickly Peter, who was the head of the church there, all of a sudden now is superseded within probably about 10 years of Jesus' death. Now all of a sudden James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the head of the Jerusalem church. And James is very, very zealous for the Mosaic Law. He was a a firm, firm believer that uh, even though you are saved by grace through faith, and even though you received the Holy Spirit, um, not by works, James didn't really quite see it that way. Whatever was going on in James' mind, he believed at that period of time understand now, this was before the destruction of Jerusalem, that he was to definitely keep the law and to tell other people to keep the law as well. Somewhere down the road, he and Paul would, uh, would have a conflict and they would attempt to settle it. But as we will see in this narrative here, they never really did get it solved. It was the destruction of Jerusalem that finally ended up solving it for the church. Okay, so picture yourself in two of these places. Antioch, whom many people believe is, was the beginning city of the church, and Jerusalem, whom many people today still believe was the beginning of the church. So make yourself a, a Gentile, a God-fearer in Antioch, and a Pharisee of Pharisees now believing that Yeshua HaMashiach was who he said he was, the Lamb slain for the sin of the world. And with that, let's take a look at these scriptures. The first ones here, the first four, are words that Jesus spoke uh, while he was living in his physical body here on earth. Understand, these words, every single one of them, were either written or spoken to individuals that actually lived. And the apostles and the people who wrote the New Testament expected those people who were receiving these words in that period of time, 1900 years ago, to understand the words. So, you know, get yourself, your frame of mind back to that period of time and understand it from that reference point, not from you living in the United States here 1900 years, and then see what happens to some of these scriptures. Okay, Matthew 10, 23. 
I'm reading, I believe, from the New King James translation. I pulled these scriptures off the computer, and I think uh, it was the New King James that I used. Okay, Matthew 10:23. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He's talking to his disciples, and he said that they will not have gone through all the cities. You know, he told them to go out throughout all the world. Well, he says, you won't have gone through all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, believe it or not, Israel is a very small uh, state. It's about 200 miles long by about 50 miles wide. Twelve disciples, or the 72, or the 3,000 from the first church there, it wouldn't be very hard at all to reach all the cities of, uh, of uh, Israel within a generation. And he says, you will not have gone throughout all the cities of Israel before this Son of Man, whoever that is, comes. Matthew 16, verse 27. Jesus speaking again. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, again, he's talking to individuals, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. People, please, really, I mean, understand, you, you, you're standing there and you're listening to Jesus Christ say these words. And now take them the way you think that you would interpret them. Standing there, right in front of Jesus. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Matthew 24, verses 33. Jesus speaking again. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that hour, day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Heaven and earth will pass away, he says, but my words will by no means pass away. And he says, I assure you, this generation will by no means pass away. Now, most of the end-time preachers today that have the uh, eschatology of the pre-trib rapture teaching that is a total perverse lie of the highest order, most of them are talking about this generation today, the one we live in, will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Jesus says, this generation will by no means pass away and... If I was living in, in Jesus' day and I heard that Matthew 24, I would not be picturing it 2,000 years later or 500 years later or 3,000 years later. He'd be pointing to me. He was talking to me. And he's saying this generation, meaning the generation that he was speaking to. Matthew 26, 64. 
Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. What is he talking about? Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, generally, again, pre, you know, these uh, pre-trib rapture teacher, teachers say coming in the clouds of heaven. That's when Jesus is going to come the second time here uh, any day now. But he says hereafter you'll see him coming, and he's coming with the clouds of heaven. So what are these clouds of heaven, and what is sitting at the right hand of power? What was Jesus talking about? Okay, let's get into some of the scriptures that Paul talked about. Paul really was the only apostle, in my opinion, in that period of time before the destruction of Jerusalem, who really, truly understood what the true gospel, the gospel that would go throughout the whole world, be, is, was all about. And it was his commission to do so. After all, the Bible calls him the gospel to the Gentiles, that is, the, or the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the nations. That was not Peter's commission, and it certainly wasn't James's commission. Nowhere did Jesus say anything about James being the head of any church. And we'll talk about that, how he got into be the head of the church. On uh, Maybe we'll get to it on this tape, but more than likely we'll probably that, that we'll reserve that for another tape. Okay. Um, Paul speaking to the Romans. Again, they, they were real people in Rome. He was not the one who uh, evangelized Rome. Someone else was there before him. And he's writing to them. And here's what he says. And do this knowing the time that it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Okay, whatever this salvation is talking about, it's nearer than when we first believed. And he says, the day is far spent, the night is far spent. The day, this day, that, you know, this word, the day to Jews had a meaning that we Christians just do not understand. Uh, we totally have a mis understanding of, of a whole lot of things like the clouds of heaven and, and the, the day of the Lord. We just totally have been uh, deceived, I mean, in a, in a, in a great way. And we'll, we'll probably talk about that later on in the tape. Another scripture, Paul writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians church was in a, it was in a sewer pit. I mean, it was like San Francisco today is the best way to describe uh, the, you know, the Corinthian city. And he writes and says to them, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. Again, he's talking to a human being, you know, living there. You know, he's not talking, uh, you know, try to understand. He's writing to individual people and he's telling them right there, the time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they have none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who, buy, who use this world as not using it. For the form of this world 
is, present tense, passing away. The form of this world is passing away. He's t he was telling people it was really better not to be married. What? Is he talking, you know, why would he say something stupid like that? I mean, the church could not exist if, in fact, he told everybody that, you know, from now on, Christians really shouldn't be married. It's better. The only, the only reason that you have any business of getting married is if you just are so horny that you can't stand it. Well, then go ahead and, and do it, but it's not the best thing. He was writing about this marriage business not being married because he knew he was talking to a specific generation, not the many generations to come of, Christen, of Christians, but this specific generation. And he knew what was at the door. And he knew the heartbreak break and grief that, that many people would have as a result of their wives being raped and killed and the, and the, and the vows that they had to make and things like that. He was talking to a specific generation that was going to go through tremendous suffering. And, and the, the burden of marriage was going to be a tremendous burden on people. You'll see this in, in the rest of the tape series here. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, he said this 1,900 years ago. Not you know, today, you know, you know that the, the Antichrist, the lawless one, was uh, was uh, was about is about ready to come in Jerusalem or in Rome or uh, from the you know ten uh, eco European economic uh, states or whatnot. He says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do it so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, and they will believe the lie, that they all might, may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, who sent the delusion? And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Okay, the next one is Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, Hebrews is a book that we really don't know who wrote. Most people in the past used to believe that Paul was the one who wrote this book. Uh, scholarship uh, of the present day would, uh, would probably differ with that. They leave it kind of anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. Maybe God wrote it all by himself. Who knows? Hebrews 1.1 1, 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophet, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Last days. Now, to a person living in, in those days, for someone to say a thousand years, would be um, ludicrous. It would be ridiculous. And you're going to find out that that's, in fact, what it was. It was, you know, our, our, our interpretation of scriptures like this has been insane. 
Hebrews 1, verse 26 through 28. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men to die once after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To, appear, to, to those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Now, this writer of Hebrews here says that uh, 1900 years ago was the end of the ages. There were no more ages after this. Now that, yeah, this is 2,000 years later. It doesn't make any sense unless you see that Jesus said he only came to the house of Israel. And that the end of the ages to the Mosaic system, the law and the prophets, and that structure, in fact, the end of the ages, the last days, was right at the door. Then, if we see, see these kind of scriptures from that point of view, it makes perfect sense that they were living in the end of the ages, but not at the end of the physical world, not at the end of God's plan for all humanity. He was speaking of the end of the ages, of the Mosaic physical structure, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the land, the, the whole system that was instituted through Moses was about to come to an absolute, complete end. Hebrews 10.25, Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, as is, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. We're going to talk more about how the uh, believers in the early church assembled and why they assembled. And, uh, and what, uh, what the, when he talks about exhorting one another, you have no idea, most of us have no idea, the pressure that the early church was under in those 40 years from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. and the things that they had to face every day. And the kind of assembling that they had, they certainly did not... You won't find a typical church service of today. You go to a church on Sunday, and I don't care which one it is in town, in your town, you will not find an assembly, anything closely resembling to how they assembled in, in that period of time from 30 to 70 A.D. And we'll talk about that a little bit in the, in the tapes to come. Hebrews 10.37 For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Again, we're dealing here with time scriptures, and we want to look at them from the, from the point of view of someone living at that period of time. And, uh, and, and, and a letter is passed to you, you're living in Antioch, and all of a sudden somebody uh, comes on, uh, on one of the services, and this, this letter to the Hebrews comes along, and you're a Gentile, and you happen to overhear this letter, you're being read uh, uh, to a, a group of... Uh, of Jews that believe in Jesus, and you're a Gentile that uh, that's a part of this, and and it says here for a little, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will not will come and will not tarry. 
if uh, if I were to tell you at that point that, uh, well, it, it'll be 2,000 years before he comes, would you have a little problem with the way this was phrased? And he, w he who is coming will come and will not tarry? Um, I think you might have a little problem with 2,000 years. Okay. James 7 through 9. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, you know, Jews in that period of time understood you know, symbolism, understood types and shadows and metaphors and similes and these kind of things, but they also understood simple plain Hebrew or simple plain Aramaic, simple plain Greek. When he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door, they weren't picturing 2,000 years of standing at the door. 1 Peter 1.20 He indeed was ordained before the foundation of the world, but is manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, another time scripture manifested in these last times. 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The end of all things <laughs> is at hand. Again, it really makes very little sense, or it will make a tremendous amount of sense when you understand the end of all things being at hand, referring to the end of all things to the nation of Israel. 1 John 2.8 Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, present tense, and the true light is already shining. So here we have a situation where the darkness is still there and it is passing away. It hasn't ended completely yet. And the true light is already broken forth. There's... It, it hasn't begun, it, it, it all, I mean, it, it has already begun, and it is shining forth. 1 John 2, 17 and 18. And the world is passing away, and the less of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. Again, you know, an hour is, it, 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 in that period of time, in Israel's period of time, the last hour was the shortest measure, measurement of time that they had. They didn't have minutes and seconds. So he was making a point, and not only was he making a point, he says the Antichrist is coming, he says, and even now the, many have already come, many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know that it is the last hour. So whoever this Antichrist is, is coming and was coming in that generation. And we'll see that the Antichrist, in fact, did come. 
and also uh, was killed in that generation. Jude 18 and 19. I hope these scriptures don't bore you. Um, sometimes we get so gospel hardened that uh, listening to a bunch of scriptures puts us to sleep. I hope I'm not putting anybody to sleep. Jude 18 and 19. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. You're going to see this scripture so perfectly, beautifully fulfilled uh, in that generation that, uh, that, that it'll, you know, it'll make you absolutely wonder how we could have been so possibly blind. And the only reason why we've been so blind is because we Christians, we spend more time reading Christian fiction and listening to idiots on television spit out your know, stupidity and spend more time watching football and, and, uh, and, and you know, involved in our little pet hobbies than we do being about our Father's business. And it's time we begin to uh, enjoy studying, enjoy, uh, you know, really rightly dividing the word, and enjoy sharing, you know, the wisdom and the truth from, from the heavenly place to the people in the world who are hungry for truth. They really are hungry. But we, as, a, as the people of God, have become poor, we have nothing but, uh, you know, we're no better than the, uh, the those idiot uh, newspapers that uh, that are sold at the uh, grocery stands. Uh, you know, the, the you know the things full of lies. Well, our churches are just like that. We're full of nonsense and full of stupid, just outright stupid lies, and we wonder why the world uh, has become numb to the truth. Um, it's because we've taught. Uh, and say that we have the truth when, in fact, we've practiced and taught a lie. It's time to stop, folks. It's time to stop. Revelation 1.1. Now, this is a book that uh, most people have put to either the end time or have put through the whole history of the church. And there's another teaching that says, no, even that book of Revelation talked about the things that were shortly about to come to the end of the world. The end of the entire physical world? No. The end of the Jewish world. And John the Apostle, writing from Patmos, um, I believe he was writing before the destruction of Jerusalem, and I believe he actually caught a picture of what was about to happen. And if some of us take a look at the book of Revelation and see from the point of view that uh, he was, he was uh, actually looking into the day of the Lord that was about to come upon Israel just within a few years from the time that he wrote this, you might see the book of Revelation with totally new uh, eyes. Revelation 1.1 tells us that the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, again, if these things were to take place 2,000 years later, why would John say that uh, God gave him this stuff to, to give to his servants? And he wrote specifically the book, first part of the book of Revelation is to seven churches, physical churches that actually exist, existed. And he says, uh, he showed him these things uh, that must shortly take place. 
And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, again, this letter, after he wrote it in Patmos, it went out into Asia Minor, and it went to these churches, and they read these words. And when, when, when they read here, the time is near, and uh, um, things that must shortly take place, if, in fact, these things didn't shortly take place, the whole book, this book of Revelation, would have been totally useless to them. Paul would have tantalized them and caused them great fear when in fact they had nothing to fear because the time wasn't near. In fact, it was for 2,000 years later in the 1990s or something like that. This whole book would have made total nonsense to them and Paul would have, or, or John would have been an outright liar if he had wrote this, this uh, revelation in the way that he did it to a people that were living, physically living, and reading these words the first time they were actually uh, read. Revelation 22.6 Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Again, a time, time statement, shortly take place. Revelation 22.10, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, how much plainer can this be? Generally, if a, if a prophet is given something and he's not allowed to open his mouth and give it to people, he tells the prophet, Seal up these words, Daniel. They're not for this time. They're not for your generation. Keep your mouth shut. But here in this book of Revelation, which we have called an end-time book, he told John, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Can it be any plainer? No, it really can't. Revelation 22, 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecies of this book. Again, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22, 12 through 13. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And Revelation 22.10 says the same thing, I am coming quickly. Well, again, picture yourself, uh, say in 40 AD, 10 years or so after uh, Jesus' ascension, and uh, and you're sitting in a synagogue, or you're sitting on the street on the street uh, corner here uh, outside the temple, and uh, someone just came along with a copy of uh, of this uh, you know, crazy apocalyptic writing that John wrote, and somehow uh, he either uh, you know, sent his letter out to Asia Minor, and uh, you know a handful of people made copies of it. You know, understand that you know, for, for many, many years after these things were written, most people did, could not get copies of these things. You heard it by word of mouth. You may have heard it read one time in your church, and then that letter may have been, been passed on. And maybe somebody may have copied down these words to keep for, for your own congregation, and maybe not. But you certainly were not in a situation 
where you could go down to the local Christian bookstore and buy five different versions, translations of the book of Revelation and study it and try to figure out what it means. Most people, um, most Christians living in that period of time, 30 to 40 AD, may have never heard or may have never read the, the, the book of Revelation in the first place. Uh, and if they did, maybe they only heard it read out loud one time. You know, it's uh, five o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, it's hard for us to grab a hold of how little the uh, the people of the early, the first church really had. Now, due to uh, time considerations, I don't want to get into uh, the parables here, but there are parables that deal with destruction that also refer to the end of this age that we're going to take a look at here and how it ended. Um, I'll just mention the parables and then and the scripture reference, and you can go and look them up yourself You know, at a later time. I hope this, is, this uh, tape series encourages to study like you haven't done before. And then for you to uh, let the Holy Spirit open up these uh, parables for uh, your, yourself, because they're just going to be too long to read on this tape series and to, uh, to talk about. Matthew uh, chapter 13, verses 24 through 43, talks about the parable of the tares. And, and I want you to take a look at this, looking at it from the point of view of that period of time from 30 to 70 A.D., and that the end of the harvest was going to be actually in 70 A.D. And look at that parable, you know, of Jesus talking to a generation and talking about the kingdom that was at hand and how, you know, what happened to it and how God was going to deal with that generation at the end of the generation. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50, talks about the parable of the dragnet. Take a look at that one also in light of what we're going to be sharing on this tape series. Another parable is the vineyard in Matthew 21, verses uh, 33. There are counterparts to it in, uh, in, Matthew's, in Mark's gospel uh, in chapter uh, 12, starting in verse 1. And Luke also has something to say about the vineyard parable in Luke 20, verse 9. Another parable is found in Matthew 22, starting in, in verse 1, and a counterpart to that you'll find in Luke 14, verse 16. It's the parable of the wedding feast, and uh, hopefully it'll, it'll, uh, you'll see these parables in different light at the end of this uh, tape series. Luke 19, verses 11 through 17, is the parable of the nobleman. So the, here are five parables, and there are probably other ones here that, you know, I just haven't uh, taken a look at and seen in a totally different way. Again, my eyes, as I'm going through this, uh, my eyes are being opened as I study. This is, by the way, I may have mentioned earlier, I don't know if I did, this is not a new teaching. This is not something that Gary Amaralt has invented or has concocted or, or has been given by revelation. There are many, many people who have seen, you know, this, uh, and who have read, who have written many books about it. And for the, for those of you who are really fascinated with this, and see that it's it's uh, uh, the, the, your, the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to your spirit that what we're saying here is true. Uh, write to me, and I'll be happy to uh, 
you know, to give you some other sources and some other writings and things like that that would be helpful for you to really rightly divide the word. Okay, I want to quote some more scriptures that, uh, again, as you're beginning to, I think as your eyes are beginning to open up uh, and your sleepiness is beginning to dissipate here, I think uh, you'll see how so many more of these scriptures all of a sudden begin to line up perfectly with uh, uh, when we give the account of what actually happened uh, from 66 to 73 AD. As you see these scriptures, uh, you're going to, when the two come together, all of a sudden there's going to be, I think, an explosion inside of you that will just all automatically rejoice at how, uh, excuse me, how beautiful. Uh, the New Testament is laid out how true Jesus' words truly are. And I believe you'll have a, a gospel and something to share with many, many people who have rejected Christianity because so many of these scriptures have been misinterpreted and have put in the, in the wrong place, the wrong time period. And many people have become atheists as a result of these scriptures being misused in, in the modern church today to preach an end-time scenario that, in fact, has indeed already come about. And when we put it in its proper place, then we can really begin to show Jesus Christ and the other apostles as apostles who spoke faithfully and true, and, and that every word that they spoke did, in fact, come to pass within the generation that they spoke to. Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12, the, uh, the counterparts to this particular uh, thing in Luke, you, uh, Luke talks about it in chapter 3, verses uh, 7 through 17, and he also talks about it again in chapter 12, verse 49. But what we're going to read here is Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise, children, to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of of the trees. Notice plural trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking to people, religious people, right then and there, John is, and he's saying that the axe is laid at the root of some kind of trees, right then and there. Okay. Matthew uh, number chapter 10, verse uh, 17 through 34 is another place I want to take a look at. There is a counterpart in Luke uh, 10, verses 3 through 21, and Luke 12, verses 11 through 56 to this. What I'm going to read is Matthew 10, verse 17 through 34. Jesus is speaking. Beware of men... For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for mine sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. 
But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what, how or what you should speak. For it will be given you in that hour what you should say. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver a brother to death, and father his children, and children will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another, for surely I say to you, you will have not gone through the the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. King James has hell, uh, New King James has hell with a footnote that the Greek means Gehenna. And as most of you know, Gehenna was a city dump outside the southwest wall of Jerusalem. Okay, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven." But whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Switching over to Matthew 23, verses 29 through uh, chapter 24, verses 44. The counterpart to that in the other Gospels is uh, Mark 13. And Luke, verses 17 through 20, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37, and Luke number 21. We're going to read Matthew 23, verses 29 through chapter 24, verses 44. This is a passage that is used so often to talk about the things that are shortly going to come upon the earth today. Of course, most of us uh, who are born again and spirit-filled and in the right denomination, we're going to escape all this stuff. We're going to be raptured away, fly away, sit on a cloud, and watch all these things come about. But let's see if, in fact, every single word that we're just about ready to talk about has already been fulfilled. Now... Whether it'll happen again or not, I'm not. that's not for me to say. But if it is going to happen again, maybe you ought to learn out and see exactly how it was fulfilled the first time. You might find yourself sitting on the wrong side of this battle today. So if nothing else, take a look and see how these things were fulfilled for your own good today. Because if there is a double fulfillment, 
most people sitting on pews today are on the wrong side. Okay, Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 29. I said on the last tape that we were going to begin in uh, Matthew 23 around verse 29, but I want to back it up to uh, Matthew 22, starting around verse uh, 41, and then go all the way through chapter 23 and then get into 24. This piece of scripture, especially chapter 24, is probably uh, the most widely used uh, scripture to teach the any day now rapture uh, of all the scriptures that are used. Again, keep in mind, we're going to be taking a look at these scriptures, especially this one here, of Jesus speaking to a generation and Jesus telling that generation that what he is speaking is going to come upon them, that very generation that he's speaking to. He wasn't speaking to someone in 1995 or 96 or 97 or 98. He was speaking to a generation. Now, not that the principle or not that the spirit in which he spoke isn't for today, because it certainly is. But he said some very specific things that were fulfilled 1900 years ago. Okay, Matthew 22, verses starting at verse 41. While the Pharisees gathered together, together Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. But he said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. Then Jesus spoke to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do to be seen of men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the border of their garments. They love the best seats in the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. 
for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one, one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the heavier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs who indeed appear beautiful outwardly but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpent, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them will you, you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, 
Your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear, hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrow. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the